92.3 FM W222CD Louisville and 106.9 WVEZ FM HD2 St. Matthews Louisville, a pure radio station. Welcome to the Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. With this show, I hope to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my latest project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with a partner. It's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really my uh, aim is to uh, help out novices and those who struggled to read the scriptures before. More information is available at thoroughlyequipped.org. On the radio show, we're starting with the book of Revelation, which is a challenging book, but a great book. It's understandable and applicable, but having someone along for the ride uh, like me can be really helpful. So my goal for the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. This week we've reached the letters to the churches at Pergamum and Thyatira. And these letters are often overlooked. I think for one thing, they're not quite as catchy. If you think about the church at Ephesus, that's the church of the forgotten first love. And then you've got Smyrna, which is the church, the church of the persecuted. And Sardis is the dead church. Philadelphia, the church of, an op- of opportunities. And Laodicea is the lukewarm church. And so these really aren't quite as catchy as the others. I think the other, another reason for this is uh, for overlooking it is that they hit pretty close to home. Uh, and so maybe uh, it's easy to uh, pawn off the, the general approaches of the other letters, although they have specifics in them. Uh, this insists on talking about specifics and specifics that are often uncomfortable in the church. And there's quite a bit of overlap. So in its discussions about, the, about work uh, and being worldly, uh, there's going to be an emphasis here uh, and a close-to-homeness uh, that that may be uncomfortable for us, but the very fact that it's that there is overlap uh, it makes it a point of emphasis that these are really important themes, and we'll dive into those as we get going this week. Lord, give us uh, ears to hear today, eyes to see. Uh, we pray that we would apply your scripture uh, wisely, that your spirit would convict us where necessary, as individuals, as local churches and as uh, the capital C Church. Lord, we want to follow you and and love you and uh, know what you want for us and from us, and we pray that today's show would help to that end. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network and this show. We'll take a break before we get rolling. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. Pure Radio, reaching all of Kentuckiana with the pure gospel of Jesus. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're wrapping up Revelation 2 today with the churches at Pergamum and Thyatira. And we'll start with Pergamum, verses 12 through 17 of Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak 
to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. From our show two weeks ago, I hope you caught uh, the pattern that we've been seeing throughout these seven letters, in particular, the description of Christ, the commendation for the church, critiques of the church, and then um, the challenge or the, the promise to the overcomer. Now, a little bit about Pergamum. It was an active center of culture. It had a famed library of 200,000 volumes given by Mark Antony to Cleopatra, who took it to Alexandria in Egypt. Also an active center of pagan religion, Dionysius, Athena, Asclepios, uh, which is where we get uh, medicine and the serpent uh, figure, and endless sacrifices to Zeus on a huge altar that cast a shadow, literally and figuratively, over the city. Uh, Parchment and vellum, which is animal skin paper, originated there. Its name, Pergamina, is derived from the name of the city. It was also the capital of a Roman province of Asia. It was a capital for about 400 years, and thus an especially active center of Caesar worship. It was, in fact, the first city with a temple for a living emperor in 29 BC. So in a nutshell, it's a tough place to be a Christian. Culture dominates false religion, and Caesar worship make it difficult to follow in the ways of Jesus. Let's start with the commendation. They had been true to God despite some really tough situations. It says that literally he, that he, it was where you live, where Satan lives and has his throne. So this is obviously pointed to emperor worship, which we've talked about in the last few weeks as well. Uh, and so the, the claim of uh, Roman supremacy, even over uh, the Christian God, is going to be troubling for the believers. Often they were facing Jewish opposition. We saw that back in chapter 2, verse 9. But really, the more dominant theme is Roman emperor worship, and it's certainly a problem here. And as we'll see in this passage, and especially uh, the church at Thyatira, uh, it's probably connected to employment and trade guilds. And so if you didn't do what you were supposed to do from a a Roman perspective or, or worshiping false gods, you might lose your job. And so, you know, this is, this is difficult times, right, where compromise uh, is troubling from a faith perspective, but it might be the only way uh, to keep your job and the standard of living that you might want. And for Christians, we're not promised health and wealth. We're not promised financial security and physical comfort. And there are some areas of life and one's lot, lot in life that can be much more difficult circumstantially. Uh, in a hostile world, but God's grace is sufficient. But the answer to this hostility is not pulling out of the world either. Christ calls us to conquest or overcoming rather than compromise or escapism. Christ is a bridge over, uh, not a bridge over or around troubled water. He's a bridge through troubled waters. Uh, I love the passage in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans 
that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Or as Paul writes in Philippians 2.15, he talks about uh, their faith standing out, quote, in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars. All this reminds me of, uh, of a great phrase by John Stott. He talked about rabbit hole Christianity, where our only contact with the world are our mad, brave dashes to and from Christian activities. So that's not what Christ wants from our faith, right? That we have rabbit hole Christianity. We hardly have any contact with the world, but compromise is not acceptable either. So uh, Pergamum and Thyatira both are helpful in getting in allowing us to wrestle with the balance between being in the world, but not of the world. So these Christians were loyal to Christ in the face of persecution and deprivation. And this implies the depth of their commitment and their faithfulness, not only here, but in other areas of life. So in many ways, they're very impressive. They can be a model for us. The text mentions Antipas, who was a leading bishop. And uh, tradition holds that he was roasted to death inside the skin of a bull. Here he's labeled the faithful witness. This is the same name that Christ gives himself in chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, We also see it in chapter 3, verse 14. The Greek word here is marturia, which is where we get the words martyr and marquee, as in a billboard. And so we're supposed to be a public witness, uh, sacrificial, uh, uh, strong in our convictions, and strong in the face of persecution and deprivation. And Pergamum was excelling in this. But despite all that, there was still a cancer to be dealt with. Verses 14 and 15 has a rebuke uh, and a strong one. Uh, They had been severely compromising with the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. You may remember the Nicolaitans from last week. We talked about them with the Church of Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 6. And Christ hated it there, and he hates it here. So something was inherently attractive about these teachings. And then you throw in some rationalization You've got the uh, pagan guild requirements. I've got to keep my job. And you can picture the sort of things they were telling themselves to uh, adhere to these false teachings. And this really gets to two of the key themes in Revelation, the idea of suffering and the threat of compromise. Now, the threat here is both moral and doctrinal, and it was being taught by leaders. So there's a, a lot of trouble here, especially when it comes from leaders. Now, the reference to Balaam, Uh, is a connection back to the book of Numbers, chapters 22 through 24. And Balaam had counseled Balak to intermarry uh, with the Israelites, tempting them to idolatry and sexual immorality. Uh, The the pinnacle is that uh, Balaam's not able to uh, call down curses on Israel, but he is able to succeed by tempting them to sexual immorality. And that story is told in Numbers 25. It's quite quite a memorable story if you haven't read it. But let me uh, use Numbers 31.16 to summarize it. It says there, they were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord in the Peor incident so that a plague struck the Lord's people. Now the Nicolaitans uh, and is an equivalent word to Balaam. Nicolaitan is Greek, Balaam is Hebrew. Both of them mean to conquer the people. We're also told here that this includes eating meat, sacrifice to idols, and sexual immorality. And uh, those are two big deals. We, we know that uh, for just straight up, but then 
Those are also two of the four conditions mentioned at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. Uh, of the four conditions that the Gentiles should observe, two of the four were uh, avoiding meat sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. And you see that in chapter 15 of Acts, verses 28 and 29. Now, again, it's sort of ironic that they were standing in the face of emperor worship, but they're struggling here. And I think that's often the case with us. Sometimes when the, when the threats are more overt and explicit, it's easier to stand than when the temptations are more subtle and implicit. In any case, that's what they're struggling with here. The bottom line is that uh, John and Christ are invoking the Nicolaitans and Balaam as a parallel to the teaching and the seduction of God's people through idolatry and sexual immorality. More broadly, this is speaking to an inappropriate mix or compromise with the world. That as we look at the culture and uh, the relationships that we have, there's a temptation to compromise. Now again, there's a balance here. We're not supposed to be subservient to the world and its culture, but we all we are to be sensitive to it. Second Corinthians six fourteen, Paul writes not to be unequally yoked with believers. But First Corinthians nine twenty two, Paul says, I do all things uh, so that by all possible means some may, may be saved. And he's speaking there of um, acceptable. Uh, bending to the culture. So we are sensitive to culture, but we're not subservient to the culture. We hold on to uh, the essentials and we are willing to compromise on non-essentials. And in contrast here, we, a lot of times people hold the non-essentials, that's called legalism, and they fold on the essentials and that's called libertinism. And we want to avoid both of those difficulties. Now in practice, this is, it's difficult to define these issues to balance these issues. Paul writes at great length about this. Uh, Romans 14 is a classic passage on this. And particularly in uh, the Corinthians, uh, we're really struggling with this. They were in a very worldly setting and we're really trying to figure this out. And Paul spends a lot of time in 1 Corinthians, both chapter 8 and the second half of 1 first, uh, first Corinthians chapter 10, talking about the trade-offs here. So uh, I would commend those to your reading this week uh, those are really, really important passages on how to how to balance this. I think with these things and other complex things in, in the Christian life, asking the question is probably half the answer. Uh, that if you're not aware of this, then you're probably in trouble. And if you're aware of it and understand the tension, then it tends to make you uh, more humble. You're going to depend going to depend on the Spirit and uh, godly counsel to try and figure these things out. We're looking here for a mix of truth and love. Uh, Remember, Ephesus had the truth part, but not the love part. Uh, Here we've got maybe too much love and not enough truth, but we have to find a balance in the two. All right, it's time for a break, so uh, please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry and its place in God's kingdom. Please spread the word about Pure Radio and this show. We'll be back in a minute. At Pure Radio, we do not ask our listeners to send us money. We do ask that you support the programs that air on Pure Radio. Please give back to the radio ministries that teach and encourage you in your daily walk with Jesus. Go to Pure Radio and click on Ministry Donations for links to give to your favorite ministry programs. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in the middle of talking about the the letter to the church uh, at Pergamum. Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17. And we talked about the commendation and the critique. 
And now we get to the command. Verse 16, the command from Christ is to repent and to return. And if they didn't, he was going to come with the sword of my mouth. Now, again, they were probably concerned and respected Rome's sword, but Christ's sword is a bit stronger than that. Uh, Verse 12, Christ is identified as the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. This is a reference back to chapter 1, verse 16, in the broader depiction of Christ. And that's the right attribute to to mention here, right? That uh, they were trying to uh, walk a tight line, and the Word of God is, as Hebrews 4.12 says, is active and living, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And that's what's needed here, right? We need the distinction and discernment that come from God's Word. Uh, We need uh, to know that there's a difference in what we do and, and the motives. And particularly in dealing with the world, that's a huge concern. There's what you do and there's why you do it. And so you might even be doing the right things, but for the wrong motives. And the Word of God and, uh, and the Spirit want more from, that, from us than that. They were struggling with the truth and how to apply it, and they needed the help of the Word of God to make those distinctions. All right, the last thing then with the church at Pergamum is verse 17, the promises to the overcomer in the second half of that verse. Uh, A couple of intriguing things here we don't fully understand, but they allude to some pretty cool things. It mentions the hidden manna, and we know that Christ is the bread of life. Uh, That's talked about in John 6. And it's hidden from non-believers. It's unavailable to those who have not yet experienced him. For us, right, as believers, it's a taste of joy and of what heaven will be like. And I think that's especially important in the midst of trials. If we're dealing with deprivation and uh, persecution, especially if the world's looking good, uh, it's, it's better to know that the hidden manna is available to us. I think the second thing about the, the hidden manna is that it implies privilege and feasting. Uh, remember that they're being tempted by pagan feasts. And here Christ says, I've got, a, uh, I've got a bread of life that's more important, that's more valuable. And I'm offering you a special nearness, an intimacy. Uh, we're told in Hebrews 9, 4 and Exodus 16 that only the high priest was ever close to the golden jar of manna. And that was one time a year. And here Christ is saying, no, I've got hidden manna that's available for you all the time. The white stone is even more intriguing. It says it's a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him to him, who receives it. Now, white is, a, of course, a picture of holiness and absolution from the guilt of sin. Uh, in that day, they would use white and black stones to pronounce judgments. Stones also signal durability, uh, things that are not changeable. Stones were also used at that time as admission into banquets, Again, a reference, uh, a counter-reference to the pagan feasts that they were being um, invited to and tempted into. Uh, the stones would be a reference to that and, uh, or other places of honor. So uh, if you've accomplished something or you've got a friend, uh, the stones would be some uh, sort of marker for that. And of course, all of this points to a special and unique intimacy with Christ. There's also a name inscribed upon it. And this is a big deal throughout the scriptures, right? That we have a new name. And so we see God using names and new names uh, as a signal of or to change identity. Uh, The first thing Adam does as his work is to name the animals. 
We have Abram changing to Abraham, so on and so forth. So names are really important in the scriptures. And we're adopted into God's family, and we receive a new name. So that's a, a pretty cool picture. And it's also a name known only to that person. Kind of reminds me of spouses and the special nicknames that they have for each other. In any case, it implies uh, an intimacy, right? It's not just a, a new formal legal civil name, right? It's, uh, there's something beyond that that implies an intimacy. And I think it's interesting to think, what will our names be? What are our names in the kingdom of God? What will be written on our stones? What characteristic? What, how will we be known? Uh, how are we known in the kingdom of God? Uh, for one thing, I think we think might think of our th- ourselves as indistinguishable in heaven. But the fact is we're going to retain our personal relationships and our individuality there. I like what Lewis says where he talks about how uh, God, uh, accepting God and following God allows us to be more individual than otherwise. That evil often is boring and mundane and plain and ordinary, uh, but uh, life in the kingdom is colorful personalities are different. God lets us become who we're truly meant to be. All right, we're going to move on to the church at Thyatira. Uh, It's a long passage, chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. This is going to be the first passage I don't read all the way through. Uh, As we mentioned before, there's quite a bit of overlap, uh, overlap with Pergamum. It's also a longer passage, but I do commend it to your reading before, during, or after our discussion here that you can um, read it on your own. A few things to say about Thyatira. Uh, It was a small church in a small city. It's the least influential of the seven, but it's also singled out for the longest letter. And uh, I think that's by itself an interesting application that the the bigger things in the world, the things we think are the most significant, uh, are not necessarily as big or important or uh, get as much attention in the kingdom. Thyatira was known for commerce more than politics, especially its agricultural uh, productivity, its wool and purple dye. And so uh, that mention may get you to remember Lydia in Acts 16, 14. So again, business is a big deal, but that takes us back to the business and trade guilds, kind of like today's unions, uh, that were part of Pergamum's problem and part, big, definitely a part of Thyatira's problem. Prosperity in that setting often meant compromise, or at least the appearance of it. And that's an important distinction, right? It's not just the reality. Perceptions matter as well. If we're looking for distinctions between Pergamum and Thyatira, this one is more about compromise in the world and the workplace. And uh, Pergamum is more about uh, general compromise or compromise with, say, worldly standards. So there is a lot of overlap, but if you're looking for a way to distinguish between the two, uh, we, we would focus on Thyatira as workplace and Pergamum as worldly. All right, let's look, at, let's look at verse 19 first. That's the commendation, and it's a strong one. Verse 19 says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. So this is huge. Loyalty, service, love, faith, endurance, which is inspired by hope. Uh, They've got deeds. They have works of service. The last part of verse 23 talks about repaying them each according to their deeds, and they're doing well there. And it's all driven by faith, and it's fueled into perseverance. In verse 25, he's going to encourage them to stay with that. 
Only hold on to what you have have until I come. So they're doing a lot of great stuff. They're encouraged to continue those things. To me, the best part of the commendation, though, is that they're clearly growing. Right? It's, it's one thing to have those things. We saw that with the church of Ephesus, but Ephesus was going the wrong direction here. Right? They had forsaken their first love. And we had said at that time that uh, either the deeds themselves were already slipping, right? that they were doing the right things, but if not driven by love, it undermines the effectiveness of it. And certainly for the long run, the ability to persevere without love as the engine and the motivation is not very good. And so that's not a problem for Thyatira. They're doing well and they're growing. It's a strong and improving ministry. They've got disciples of Jesus who are loving people more and more effectively. A combo of verses I really like on this, 1 Thessalonians 1.3. I'd like to have this on my tombstone, I think. This is such a, a great verse. Paul writes, We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, what a great verse. Wouldn't it be great to be known that way? And I think you get the impression that the people of Thyatira uh, are known by something uh, similar to this verse. But then Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 1.3, uh, he says there, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. So Paul is impressed in 1 Thessalonians 1.3 with them, but 2 Thessalonians, now he comes back and commends them for their growth, and not just growth in faith, but growth and love for each other. And again, the people of Thyatira are doing a nice job with that. Comparing the backsliding of Ephesus with the growth in Thyatira, Matthew Henry says, when others had lost their first love, these were growing wiser and better. It should be the ambition and earnest desire of all Christians that their last works may be their best works. And it's tempting to think about discipleship as reaching a certain level but really, that's not the model the, the scriptures give us. The, the model is of growth and progress. Uh, I think it's 1 Timothy 4.15, where Paul says to Timothy, show them your progress. It doesn't say show them your perfection or show them you know, the level you've attained. Show them your progress. And, and so I think that's what we're looking for as well. Discipleship doesn't mean doing something well. It just means being on a path of growth as we apprentice with our Lord Jesus. Growth also reveals a heart, right? Even when I'm working with students, uh, the sharp ones that come in and leave, they're fine. But the ones that excite me the most are the ones that are on a path of growth and learning. Even B and C students who have grown tremendously are really, really uh, impressive and inspirational in a way that even an A student would not be. Uh, another thing about growing people is they're more likely to take and to use constructive criticism. And so growth is a really important barometer for us as we uh, try to understand the importance of faith and how to interpret where we are with our faith. So they've got good externals, good internals, but again, as with Pergamum, there is a cancer raging. And so Christ wants them to deal with that. But we'll have to take care of that after this break. Uh, on Facebook, please like the Pure Radio Network and friend me there. Uh, we'll post podcasts to Facebook, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Look under the word diet. 
and I'll certainly interact with you on Facebook as my programs are posted there. If you have questions or comments, I'd be happy to deal with them there. So stay tuned and we'll be back in a minute. Dependable, trustworthy, pure radio at 92.3 FM and 106.9 FM HD2. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in the middle of our discussion of the church at Thyatira, Revelation 2, verses 18 through 29. Uh, We talked about the impressive commendation to the church in verse 19 before the break, and that takes us to the rebuke in verses 20 and 21. And this is pretty uh, heavy stuff. The commendation's awesome, but the rebuke is rough as well. Uh, Verses 20 and 21, it says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So there's a reference to Jezebel and her followers here. It's probably figurative for a female leader. Uh, It's possible that her name was literally Jezebel, but kind of like people don't name their kids Adolf anymore. I I doubt there were a lot of uh, people that wanted to name their kids uh, Jezebel, given her reputation from 1 Kings 16. Uh, The role of a prominent female in leading them into trouble is ironic, given Lydia's early role in this church. Again, Acts 16 talks about this. She was claiming to be a prophetess, and that's okay if you are one, but if you're not, uh, that's going to be a problem. There are quite a few female prophets in the Bible, so there's no problem with gender, but claiming to speak for God when you don't uh, is an obvious problem. It's also a violation of the third commandment to misuse the name of God. She was also misleading the people with her teachings. James 3.1 promises a stricter judgment for teachers, and you can imagine why that would be the case practically, that teachers and leaders uh, carry a lot of weight, and so uh, them leading other people into temptation and error uh, is, is a huge problem. Now, what was she teaching? Well, it's similar to what we've read before. Uh, the Nicolaitans, who we ran into in Pergamum and Ephesus, and we had Balaam in Pergamum. Uh, but here the focus it seems to be a little more on uh, practice and ethics uh, than beliefs and doctrine. So it's not so much about uh, heresy and doctrine uh, as in the other churches. It seems to be much more focused on uh, behaviors, that she was encouraging people in the marketplace to compromise and to put themselves in a position where they would eat meat sacrificed to idols and be tempted to engage in immorality. If we broaden this out a bit, William Barclay says this, he says, Jezebel is to be counted amongst those to whom the claims of commercial success speak more loudly than the claims of Christ. As we talked about, if Pergamum is more about worldliness in a general sense, Thyatira is more focused on worldliness in the workplace in particular. And so there's a balancing between uh, success in worldly terms and the claims of Christ. And when those conflict, Christ must Uh, beat commerce. Uh, The things we're doing in faith have to be uh, held before the things we do in the world and in the workplace. So Jezebel is one problem, but then really the letter is aimed at the church. If you look early in verse 20, it says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, right? The false teachers are to be expected. That's not really the top issue here. It's the failure of the church leader 
church leaders and the church to discipline and excommunicate when appropriate. Uh, you're going to find knuckleheads leading churches. You're going to find trouble. But then the question is, what does the church do about it? What do the elders and the congregation do with it? And so there's a call here to church discipline. Now, again, doing church discipline is a complicated matter as well, but tolerating it is not acceptable. So a few observations here that are interesting with the context we have here. First of all, the reference to Jezebel is interesting because when you read the account in 1 Kings, uh, Ahab comes off as a, a bad guy, but kind of softer than his evil wife, Jezebel. It's really Jezebel who's driving that train. And that's kind of what's happened here, right? The people in the church are like Ahab. They're just kind of putting up with this, and they're not taking a stand against the evil that is Jezebel or is represented by Jezebel in this story. Same thing. Interesting as well that Thyatira is the opposite of Ephesus. Remember that Ephesus did not tolerate evil, but didn't have the love. Thyatira has the love, but it's tolerating the evil. And so again, it's easy to fall off the, uh, the wagon on either side of things. And it's also easy for uh, the Ephesians to laugh at the Thyatirans and the Thyatirans to poke fun at the Ephesians. But both are errors. Both are not acceptable. We're, we need to have love and we need not tolerate evil. It's also interesting that we've got a progression here. The Ephesians hated this sort of thing. Pergamum had some of it, which implies tolerance, but here we're told explicitly that the Thyatirans did tolerate it. And so again, how do we find a balance between uh, not tolerating evil, but still practicing love? Really difficult to do. So the church is held responsible here. It's not just Jezebel that's held responsible. The church is held primarily responsible for allowing itself to be seduced into compromise and acculturation. And so one quick application here is that, you know, we're responsible as well. When people gossip, we're responsible to walk away or put an end to it creatively. When we hear heretical teaching, uh, you got to say something. At minimum, you walk away, but more likely you got to get that fixed. When things are seriously wrong in our relationships or in the uh, workings of the church, something needs to be said. And it's so easy to let stuff go here. Um, that we fall into the sin of Thyatira. Now, why do we fail? Why did they fail? I think usually it's, we don't want to bear the cost personally, right? We're chicken, we're, we don't, we're fearful, we're worried about the consequences. Uh, we don't want to lose our friends. We don't want to take a chance on doing it poorly. And so we just chicken out. Uh, but there's too much at stake for that to be uh, the approach. It is difficult to confront leaders. It's difficult to confront sin in our relationships. But, you know, and this is not a call to, uh, for witch hunts or to go after everything, but there are, there are sins that rise to that level that you, you've got to deal with it. You've got to take risks in relationships and in the church to deal with serious sin. We should not rationalize compromise or understate its costs. And too often that's the case uh, in the contemporary church as it was with Thyatira. In verses 22 and 23, the text moves to Christ's ex execution of divine judgment on her and her followers. Verse 22 says, So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. Right? So it's for her, a bed of suffering, which is fitting given her spiritual adultery, but also for her followers. They will suffer intensely. Verse 23 says, I will strike them dead. 
so this is uh, serious business. Verse 23 goes on to talk about that the churches would know that, he who, that God is he who reaches hearts and minds and that he will repay each of them according to their deeds. Uh, it reminds me of the, the plagues in Exodus. Uh, the top verb as the plagues are unfolding is that the Egyptians and the Israelites and Pharaoh and Moses would know that he is God. And so we have the same theme here. It's not plagues for plagues' uh, uh, sake, right? It's uh, ultimately that we would know God. And so we know God in his love and we know God in his judgment. And if they're not going to listen to warnings, uh, then there's going to be judgment. But all of it, whatever it is, is that we would know God and know him better. Then we get to the exhortation in verses 24 and 25. And that's expressed to the rest of you. Now, this could be what's often called a godly remnant, but remnant implies a small group of people, and we don't know that's the case here, but there is a clear distinction between uh, the two groups, right? There are those who are compromising, and there are those who are a faithful remnant who are uh, having a hard time, right? They're having a hard time in the world with what to do, and then they're ironically having a hard time in their own church, right? That the church is giving them a hard time for being faithful. The Jezebel and her followers are making it difficult for them, and so there's this godly remnant who do not hold to their, her teaching, that are who are trying to remain faithful within the church and within the world against the temptations that Thyatira is facing. Verse 24 also mentions Satan's so-called deep secrets. It seems to allude to some form of Gnosticism, uh, secret knowledge, emphasizing knowledge over behavior uh, or experiences over uh, doctrine. Uh, so there's something here, it looks like, uh, with, with uh, what's happening in Thyatira. And there's also an interesting reference at the end of verse 24 where it says, I will not impose any other burden on you. And it reads to me as if uh, John and Christ are saying, look, you've you got enough to think about and worry about. I'm not going to uh, give you any other knowledge or any other uh, you know, anything else to wrestle with here, you've got plenty on your plate. But anyway, that's an interesting phrase at the end of verse 24. And finally, 26 through 28, you have the charge or the promise to the overcomers. Verse 26 uh, is an interesting phrase, those who do my will to the end. So doing his will and the importance of that. Uh, and then to the end implies long-run obedience in the face of trials and temptation that are ongoing. 26 and 27 talk about authority over the nations, and this is a reference to Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9. But here it's applied to believers uh, rather than uh, a messianic reference. Um, This seems to allude to life on earth as a training ground for future leadership in heaven. Uh, It's a topic for a different day. We'll talk about this uh, at the end of Revelation with the new heavens and earth. But uh, there's some enticing uh, principles here that are hard to understand uh, about what life will look like in the in its next phase. You know, of course, eternal life has already begun for the believers, but there's a new phase of it in the new heavens and earth that will look similar to, but different, uh, considerably different from what we have today. And then verse 28 has a reference to Christ as um, the morning star, and that here uh, he's giving himself to them. Uh, same reference in chapter 22, verse 16 of Revelation. And also, uh, it's, it's interesting to note that Numbers 24, 17, that's one of the Messianic references in the book of Numbers, happens to be in that Balaam Balak story that we talked about earlier. Uh, so the morning star is a reference to there as well. 
Basically, Christ is promising to give himself to them. Back to verse 18, think about how Christ is described. He uses the phrase Son of God. It's the only time in Revelation that's used. Uh, And it's changed a bit from chapter 1, verse 13, where he was described like a son of man. And so that's probably a move to focus explicitly on the deity of Christ and to help them uh, avoid compromise. Verse 18, his eyes are piercing, penetrating, perfect knowledge and insight. God could see their sin and their good works, even if others couldn't. His feet are steady and sovereign. Uh, would encourage them to stand firm. Uh, and it also alludes to his judgment. And then finally, the brilliance of his eyes and the bronze, the blazing burnished bronze, uh, is a picture of the zealous in- indignation of God towards sin and the righteous judgment of a pure and holy God. So we're going to take our final break and then come back with some applications on these two churches. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry and its peace within God's kingdom. Please spread the word about Pure Radio and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Responsible, credible, Pure Radio, 92.3 FM and 106.9 FM HD2. All right, welcome back to the Word Diet. Uh, We're wrapping up our discussion in this last segment of the churches at Pergamum and Thyatira in Revelation 2. And uh, these are two churches within the seven, and they have uh, two particular um, sets of sins and things that, uh, and problems that are uh, unique, uh, but overlap with each other. And as I talked about in the opening, they tend to, get overlooked a bit. Uh, I think they're not as easy to put in a box as the other churches are to label. And I think their problems also hit really close to home. And so we're tempted not to talk about them as much as we should. Now, what are those problems? Well, it's how to deal with the world uh, and the compromises uh, there, potential compromises, but also the call to interact with the world. So we can make two mistakes here. We can walk away from the world or we can become enmeshed in the world. But Jesus talks about being uh, in the world but not of the world. And so that balance is really, uh, it's an everyday problem. It's an everyday thing. And it's something we we should talk about quite a bit. And in particular, with Thyatira, we see the temptation uh, of worldly values, especially in the workplace. Uh, They were being uh, tempted to participate in guilds uh, like today's unions uh, that had a, an aspect of pagan, wor- a huge aspect of pagan worship in, involved with it. So they were being tempted to compromise in a way that was relevant to their well-being and their career and their finances. And so you can see where this would be tremendous. You can have a lot of empathy for them that if your job was, you know, strongly encouraging you to compromise or you couldn't earn a living um, because uh, you weren't willing to compromise, that's a, a serious problem and a serious temptation. So in this last segment, I want to broaden this out a bit and talk about applications and, and try and, and tease this out. So they were being tempted to sexual immorality. And that's a broad term uh, that refers to uh, sexual sin outside uh, the context of marriage. And um, one of the unfortunate things in, in Christian social ethics is that we tend to make one of two big mistakes here. Both of them are modeled in John chapter 8, right? The woman caught in adultery. There the Pharisees bring a woman caught in adultery to Jesus. 
Uh, he draws some stuff in the in the dirt. Uh, he eventually encourages them, you know, ye, uh, ye who are without sin cast the first stone, and eventually everyone walks away. And the concluding line to the woman is, you know, where are your accusers? And she says, well, they're, they're gone. And he says, you too go and sin no more, uh, right? And so the balance here and the mistakes are the, the Pharisees chucking rocks at people, uh, narrowly interpreting and applying the law and, and Christian ethics on the one side, but then there is the, the matter of the sin that the woman was committing. And Jesus doesn't condone that. He says, go and sin no more. Don't continue to harm yourself and other people. Uh, do the right thing, right? Uh, obey me, follow me, love God, love others. Uh, and so that neither condemning, forcefully condemning, nor uh, condoning the sin. And it's so easy to make both mistakes, right? Uh, if, if we're going to stereotype, we'd say that conservatives tend to be the first group and they tend to chuck rocks and pick uh, on a few sins that are really important for them or convenient or whatever. And then you've got, uh, again, generalizing those who are more liberal, who aren't going to make that mistake, but they're, they're more likely to condone sin. And the way of Jesus, of course, is neither, right? That we neither condemn uh, people uh, nor condone sin. And doing uh, both is challenging, but the call that we, we are to follow. So let's think through a couple ways where this manifests itself. Um, not quite so much today, but certainly uh, the, the previous decades, it was, it was tempting in the, uh, among conservatives to act as if homosexuality was uh, the biggest of all sins, that homosexuality was in essence the sum of uh, sexual ethics, uh, Christian sexual ethics, and that Christian sexual ethics was uh, the dominant or only part of Christian social ethics. And of course, that's a mistake. Christian social ethics go way beyond sexual behavior, and the concerns within uh, Christian sexual ethics go far beyond homosexuality. On the other side, we've seen a lot of sin in this realm uh, and sexual immorality be condoned. And this is true of both liberal and conservative churches, right? For liberal churches, they've gone uh, the route uh, many times of just condoning sexual sin, just saying, redefining sin, saying it's not sin or saying it's no big deal. Uh, and that's not acceptable. Uh, in both liberal and conservative churches, uh, the plague of divorce has gone with uh, very little attention, at least compared to the amazing damage that it causes to individuals and to society. Again, neither approach is biblical. Neither approach is um, appropriate. Both are falling prey to the sins of Pergamum and Thyatira, uh, not compromising with worldly standards, or in the case of uh, condemning sin uh, too heartily, and condemning sinners, uh, the mistake of uh, the Pharisees in John chapter 8. But here we're really talking about the compromise side of things and uh, what the church should do. It's, it's pretty common to hear people talk about uh, same-sex marriage, so-called same-sex marriage, and, and, and say, you know, something like, you know, that's destroyed marriage. And my thought is always, well, no, marriage is being destroyed for 50 years, right, through divorce, most notably. Uh, whatever damage that uh, so-called same-sex marriage is going to do or has done pales beyond uh, next to what, what divorce has done. 
that church has been largely uh, silent, at least relative to the damage that it's caused. It's also common for people to talk about the, the divorce rates in the church are roughly equivalent to the divorce rates outside the church. And that statistic is not as useful as one might think. For one, uh, we would expect broken people, including those who are divorced, to be attracted to the gospel, right? Uh, Christ didn't come to heal the healthy. He came to heal the sick. And so often it's broken people, including the divorced, who who are attracted to the church. And to the extent that we have divorced people in our church because they are divorced, because they are broken, because they have suddenly figured out they need the mercy and grace of God, that's awesome, right? So we don't mind that contribution to the statistic. Part of the statistic is that it's serving those who claim to be Christians, right? And here we have a a statistical problem because what is a Christian? Well, there's biblical Christians, disciples of Jesus, and the like, and then there are people who claim it, right? Where it's more of a cultural affiliation. When you meet someone who's Jewish or Muslim or Christian, uh, what does that mean? Is that just something that's uh, ethnic or tradition or what my mama always said, or is it something that's real? To the extent that we have cultural Christianity in the, in the United States, and of course that's a tremendous uh, level, uh, then it's not really fair to put high divorce rates that occur among cultural Christians on the church. Um, a, it's not clear they're Christians in the biblical sense, and B, even if they are, they're uh, nominal and they're not involved in the church. They're not in a place where the church can do much for them. But those two groups aside, divorce still happens far too often in the church, right? Among people who are regular attenders, uh, among people who have already professed Christ, who are active in the church, and then get divorced. That is a problem, a huge problem. And it should not happen without counsel and without some level of church discipline, without the church getting involved in this horribly damaging sin, right? The damage it does to individuals, the damage it does to society, and the damage it does to the institution of marriage. Again, we hear people talking about the attacks on marriage, but every divorce is an attack on marriage. So don't hear me wrong here. I'm not saying that there's never an occasion for divorce, even among church-going Christians, but even within those divorces, uh, there would be uh, a a need, an absolute need for counseling, working with elders, and some form of church discipline uh, in the face of uh, of this sin. And so it's something that, that is difficult and something the church has found, a hard, uh, found it difficult to deal with, and that's understandable, but you got to deal with difficult things. And so the church's failure on this matter has been tremendous and has caused tremendous damage. I, th- I think the other way that the churches in Pergamum and Thyatira speak to our moment, right, and the, and the temptation of churches uh, is not just sexual ethics, but the potential for idolatry and its connection to work. Now, idolatry means putting anything above God, and that can be, you know, all sorts of things, right? I mean, we could, we could talk about uh, drugs and alcohol. We could talk about uh, work. We could talk about sports, uh, the great American middle-class dream. Uh, but here it relates to career and work. 
Uh, and so, you know, what do we do with that? Well, you know, there's just a lot of temptations here, right? If we look at uh, the American dream and, and the way the world works, um, there's a, a big emphasis on work and career, especially in the middle and upper middle uh, classes. So to overemphasize work, and then it connects to consumerism, right? What are you doing with the money? And sometimes our desire to buy things is what's driving our uh, career and work pursuits, and that's not appropriate either. So, you know, work is fine. In fact, it's the first institution laid out by God, Genesis 2. First thing that Adam is given, even before Eve shows up, is his work, his vocation, his career, his purpose. Uh, we are built in the image of a creator God, so we're meant to be creative. So this is not a call to diswork at all. Work is crucial, but work is only right in its place within God's economy. Work can be elevated to the point of idolatry. And of course, we find temptations at work, right? And this can be everything from uh, uh, an attractive co-worker, and we're tempted to uh, various forms of immorality, or it can be uh, a temptation to cheat on records or to fudge account reports or to play uh, fast and loose with uh, how I, I market a product. I often ask my econ students, you know, what's the difference between marketing and fraud? And it's fun to watch them uh, have some trouble defining those terms. And that's a discussion for a different day. But man, there are temptations uh, in the field of marketing and sales. And then, there, then there's a form of Gnosticism that goes with worldliness. This is the idea that I can do what I want Monday to Friday, Monday through Saturday, and then I do my Sunday thing, right? And Gnosticism uh, preaches that there's a, a big difference between the body and the soul and the spirit, and that I can do what I want with my body uh, or with one part of my life, and you know it doesn't really matter what I do with the rest of it. And that's just not the case. And so there's this temptation to... Uh, uh, separate those out and to treat them as if they're different, to be tempt tempted to some form of worldliness or another. Well, what do we do about this? You know, I think the first thing is to actively disciple with Jesus. It's not that these problems go away, but uh, the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace, as the old hymn says. And so if we're walking with Jesus, the things of this world become less attractive. Second, it speaks to the importance of godly counsel that there's people that have wrestled with this stuff. Uh, there's books to read. There's people to talk to uh, generally or in your specific field, people who can mentor you and provide you with some godly wisdom on how to handle particular temptations. Sometimes the answer to temptation is to flee. And so for some of you, this, this may mean that you, know, you need to get out of the job or career that you're in. Not that it's necessarily wrong for everybody, but maybe it's not right for you. Maybe it's not something that you can handle. Maybe um, the benefits that it brings, the strokes to your ego, the money, uh, those are fine. There's nothing inherently problematic with those things. But maybe for you, these are temptations that are too much for you to bear. And if that's the case, and you're better off uh, cutting off that hand or gouging out that eye than, uh, than sticking with the path that you're on. So the church at Thyatira and the church at Pergamum have a lot to offer us, and we shouldn't overlook it. the calls to avoid sexual immorality and worldliness uh, are really important for our day and age. I hope you found uh, this discussion helpful. Uh, we're going to wrap up uh, today with a prayer, Lord, that you would uh, instruct us, convict us, 
put people on our path, help us to stay out of the rut of just living life as we always have. Help, help us to wrestle with what it means to follow you faithfully uh, with, in our work and what it means to uh, walk in this world, but not to be of this world. Thank you for the work you've done on the cross and the work you've done in this world showing us the way. Lord, we pray that we would walk faithfully with you in the days to come. Well, I've enjoyed being with you. Uh, Look for the podcast on Facebook, SoundCloud, Spotify. Interact with me on Facebook. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next week on The Word Diet. Become a P3 Partner. P3 Partners are pure radio listeners who pray for pure radio each day, provide financial support to our programmers, promote pure radio by telling others about us and sharing us on Facebook. Ready to get started? Go to pureradio.org and click on the P3 Partners button and register. P3 Partners have privileges. Get books, DVDs, CDs, devotional materials, invitation-only access to Pure Radio events, and other experience opportunities only available to P3 Partners. Pray, provide, and promote Pure Radio. Become a P3 Partner today.